Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be preaching now again for another stretch for a few weeks, and uh, next week I'm going to go back to our uh, series on seven, working through the the letters to the churches in Revelation uh, chapters one to three. But today I want to finish off uh, what Pastor Ray spoke about last week. He talked about prayer. It was a powerful message. Uh, You know, sometimes it's those simple messages. We all know we're supposed to pray. And uh, we all know the Bible says to pray, and that's what Christians do. And, and then Pastor Ray just preached that message last week, and I just felt, you know, the whole second half of the message, I could just feel the Holy Spirit just tugging on me and building my faith, uh, just again thinking about this awesome truth that, that God works in response to prayer. And today I want to finish that off. So next week I'll go back to my series here on, on, in Revelation. But I want to talk today, I want to talk about fasting, okay? And I know that's all of your favorite topic. You all just went, woo, I'm so glad I got up this morning and came. Um, don't, please don't tune out, all right? Don't check out. I'm not going to put a guilt trip on you today, I promise. I'm not going to put a guilt trip on you today about fasting. I'm not going to tell you you have to fast. We're not going to get legalistic about this thing. But I, and in fact, I could talk to you. I wish, if I had an hour and a half, I, I literally, I wish we had a lot longer today. I'd go through the whole history of how most of my Christian life, until just in the last few years, I absolutely uh, hated uh, fasting. Okay, but we're going to talk about fasting today. And you know, if you go around the world, uh, you go around the world today, all over the place, you go to the underground seminaries in China and Vietnam and countries like that, and where they're training up these young leaders, and they're training up these young leaders to plant churches and grow the kingdom of God and do powerful things for God. And they, and these seminaries, fasting isn't a course in the seminary, the whole, the whole Training, the whole system is steeped in prayer and fasting. At our seminaries here in North America, you don't, we don't even talk about fasting. In fact, we more, if any, if, in fact, if anybody talks about fasting here in the West, we talk about how you can't be legalistic about it. But you go around the world and they fast. You go to Africa and they're fasting. You go to the Middle East. Right now in the Middle East, we've got some great books in the library right now about huge church planting movements that are going on, where they're planting thousands of churches every year in horribly persecuted, um, you know, Muslim countries. They're planting the Christian church, and Jesus is doing things, amazing things are happening. And you read the stories, and they're praying and fasting. And so, you, and, and I mean, my own experience, I've talked about it many times before. My wife and I, beginning of our marriage, we went to Korea for a year. I've often talked about it. It was a very uh, formative time in my life. God showed me some things. Sometimes it's good to get out of your context and see things from a different perspective. But I remember while we were there, we went to a church, had just about 900,000 members in it. And in, it started in 1958. We were there in 2002, 2003. So in just over 40 years, they had won almost a million people to Christ. In 1958, when they started that church, uh, Korea was 1% Christian. It was basically an unreached country. In 2002, 2003, when we were there, Korea was a little over 30% Christian. And you say, well, what was their their evangelistic program? I mean, to go from 1958 when they planted this church to win a million people to Christ in just over 40 years and change a country. I mean, what was, they must have had a big glitzy evangelism program. You want to know what their evangelism program basically was? This is what they did. This was their fancy, glitzy, it's real complicated, lots of money program for winning people to Christ. This is what they did. All their people, when they would get saved in Korea and Seoul there where we were, it's 15 to 20 million people packed into a tiny little city. There's no such a thing as, you know, houses and yards and driveways. That doesn't exist there. Everybody lives in these, in these high-rises. And so what these Christians would do is they would go into their apartment complex, they would go to all their neighbors on their floor, 
And they would go to each neighbor and they would introduce themselves and they would say, this is who I am. I love Jesus. Do you have any prayer requests? Do you have any big things in your life that you need God to do in your life? And they would write it down. And they'd go to all their neighbors on their floor and they'd go back to their apartment and they would pray and fast for the prayer requests of their neighbors. And they would pray and fast and pray and fast and God would begin to answer prayers and do miracles. Figure that, hey, God answers prayer. And he'd begin to do big things in their neighbors and their neighbors would show up at their door and go, okay, wild, what's going on here? Okay, I had this huge problem in my life. I don't even believe in God. You show up at my door and say, you're gonna pray for me on this thing and it's happening. They would get saved They would start a little cell group right there on that floor. And the first thing they would do is they would begin to disciple those believers. They had a program of discipleship. And part of that discipleship was, right off the bat, first thing you do with a new believer is you get them, you fast. You do a three-day fast. Three days, no food. Teaching them the word of God. Teaching them to pray. Teaching them to to rely on God. First three days, you go without food. You keep the discipleship thing going. A little while later, you do a seven-day fast with them. No food. And then you keep praying. You keep showing them the word. You keep discipling them and what it means to be a believer. You disciple them all this sort of stuff. At the end of the discipleship process, you do a 10-day fast, 10-day fast with no food. Now you're ready to go out and do some damage for God. They'd send them out. Now you go and get your neighbors. And you go door to door to your friends and your family and you ask them for prayer requests and then you pray and fast until God does something big in their life. And then they come to you. You lead them to Christ. You disciple them. They go and do it. They want almost a million people to Christ in just over 40 years. You know, I think about stuff like that, and doesn't it just remind you of something? Doesn't it just remind you of, oh, uh, the Bible? Doesn't it sound kind of familiar? I mean, it doesn't sound familiar to how we do church out here in the West, but doesn't it kind of sound like the book of Acts? Maybe it doesn't remind you of the book of Acts, but you know, this week I did, I wrote on my board, you know, because just thinking about this stuff and meditating on this stuff this, this month, prayer and fasting month, I wrote, I wrote on my board, I, I just want to see, you know, how many times in the Bible did people fast? And I just, I got a huge whiteboard in my office and I just started, I just had my Bible program, I just started going through, I was just writing them all on the board. I just filled up my board with writing and I couldn't get them all down there. I mean, in the Bible, even, even bad people fasted, okay? And now I'm going to do a little rabbit trail, and, but we're going to fit this all in. But you know, King Ahab, you all know King Ahab, right? He was a bad, bad man. Okay, and he did some bad, bad things in his life. And at one point, one of the prophets, and I can't forget it, I can't remember if it was Elisha or Elijah, but just go and read the whole Old Testament, you'll find the story, it's there, I promise, okay? Be good for you, do some Bible reading. Whatever it was, Elisha, Elijah comes to him and says, you have been wicked because you killed Naboth for his vineyard, and God is going to judge you. You know what Ahab did? He's a wicked man. He fasts, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, he fasts for three days. God sends another word to Elisha, or Elijah, whichever one it was, And he said, uh, you know what? I am very pleased with Ahab's repentance. I'm not going to punish him. I'm going to punish his kids. And, uh, well, that's comforting for a guy like Ahab anyway. But, I mean, God just works and responds. You see, it's right through the Bible for all kinds of reasons. Fasting, fasting, fasting. You get to the book of Acts, okay? You know, you talk about around the world. They just fast. I mean, just, and again, fasting isn't the only thing they do, but you look at these churches around the world where stuff's happening. And always in there, again, fasting isn't the only reason why stuff is happening there, but you just look at this, this common denominator that these people who are experiencing God and doing things for God, there's a softness in their heart, there's a spirit power to everything they do, and they fast. And then you get to the book of Acts, and what we find is, there's no, we don't find a lesson on fasting. What we find is just that the church fasted. They just did it. The book never stops and tells us, you have to fast, this is how you do it. It just shows us the blueprint of what the early church did. And the early church fasted. 
and they prayed. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 13. Let me just pray quickly first. We're going to pray more later too. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, it's really not about the fasting. Fasting isn't about fasting. It's about you. And I pray this morning here in this place that your Holy Spirit would get a hold of us and give us a hunger and a desperation to see you work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. I don't have time to go through all the examples. There's many, 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 but let me show you one example of fasting in the Bible. And here's the early church. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manayan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, now it gets interesting. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Notice again, it doesn't stop and tell us we should fast. It just gives us the blueprint. That's what the Bible does. It just shows us the blueprint. This is what they were doing. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after some more fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now let's read what happens next. What comes out of this prayer and fasting? A couple of verses later. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, which is just a, a fancy you know, word for governor. It's an important person, the governor of that province, the Roman governor, uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, I, you, we have to stop right there because you just, just think about this. We read these stories in the Bible. We just skim through them so fast. We never stop to let it sink in what's really happening here. Think about this. Imagine if the premier of Manitoba or some very important, you know, uh, a political figure phones you up out of the blue one day and said, please come to my house and tell me about Jesus. Okay? That's what's happening here. Think about this, Okay? The church is praying and fasting. Out of the prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, we got to go start some more churches. we got to spread the kingdom of God. He tells them to go out. They go into this province. Okay, now how are we going to spread the gospel? Remember that Christianity was just a tiny sect at this point. The Roman, the Roman Empire viewed them as troublemakers. How are we going to start a church? How are we going to start this? They go there and the governor phones them up. Well, he doesn't use a phone. He emails or whatever they did back 2,000 years ago, okay? <laughs> but the governor phones them up and says, can you guys come and tell me about Jesus? Now, wow, you know what that's called? That's called an open door, amen? Is that an open door? Now, let me ask you about something. Okay, this is really, this is really, really, really important. They fasted and they prayed. They did not put their heads together and figure out a human strategy. Okay, um, God wants us to spread the gospel to all places in the world, so let's put together a human strategy, and oh, I know what we'll do. Let's go and start a church in that province, and let's tell the governor about Jesus. That's, you don't get an appointment with these people. They prayed and fasted, then the Holy Spirit said, go and do it, and then the Holy Spirit opened up a door. Boom! Next thing you know, they're invited into the governor. Now that is the way you start a church in a, in a province at that time. I mean, that, that was a huge open door, Okay? Now, this is one of the things. I want to tell you something right now. This is one of the benefits 
of being in the presence of God and being filled with the power of God. You press into his presence in prayer and fasting, and then he, first of all, you get guidance from him, but then he supernaturally opens doors. He supernaturally opens doors. And you know the thing is, apart from open doors, you can't do anything. This is not just having to do with church work. This has to do with whether it's a business, whether it's a family. You know, you can, you can be a gifted business leader. You can have an incredible business idea for an amazing business. And by the way, this happens to hundreds and hundreds of people around the world every year. Did you know that? I've read articles about this where they talk about some of the amazing business leaders and business ideas where they have failed because the circumstances just didn't line up quite right at the right time. And they didn't get that open door. You ever been there? You have an amazing idea. You have the talent to pull it off. You've got the idea. And it's all right. It's all good. And the thing dies on the birthing table. It doesn't go anywhere. Why? Because that door didn't ever open. You've got this rebellious kid, you're trying to work with them, you're trying to do this, but unless God opens a door, you can't connect with their heart and you can't get anywhere. And how often in our lives, we spin our wheels. We're working so hard. We're, we're working overtime. We'll go weeks, months, years sometimes. We're doing our best. We're using our talent and ability. We're go, go, going, but we're spinning our wheels. We're hardly getting anywhere. And how many of you experienced this at some point in your life? And then all of a sudden, God will open one little one little door. God opens one door, and in two or three days, pop, 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 all some things, pff, you're further than you were in months and years. Has that ever happened to you? That's called an open door, okay? And that comes from God. And so out of prayer and fasting, they didn't put their heads together and figure out a human strategy. This is how we're going to take the world for Christ. They got together and said, Jesus, what do you want us to do? Prayer and fasting, pushing them. He talks to them. More prayer and fasting. We need your power. Doors supernaturally open. I mean, they got more. The moment they were in the governor and they're going to win this guy to Christ, they just got further in one little meeting than they could have gotten in years of church work. This is going to, this thing opened up the whole province for them to spread the gospel of Jesus. That's an open door. I wonder how many people here this morning, you could use an open door somewhere in your life. I wonder how many people here right now you could use an open door in your life. You, you know it's the right thing. You know it's the right direction. You know it's the right desire and you just can't make it work. You need an open door. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. They get this huge open door. Governor phones them up. Hey, I want you to share Jesus with me. Okay, that was easy. Verse 8. But, oh, we get opposition. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the, the, the governor, again, the proconsul, away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, and I love this line. This is one of my favorite lines in the Bible. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Isn't that good deceit and villainy? Can you imagine saying that to someone? But I digress, okay? And he's filled with the Holy Spirit, so God gave him this idea, full of deceit and villainy. That's so, just to say that to someone would be great. But anyway. <laughs> Will you not stop making, the, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay, so the guy went blind. Now this is an evangelism strategy, is it not? Okay? 
Think about everybody in the room right now is going, we'll do whatever you want, okay? You want us to fill the response card? We'll take Jesus into our heart. Don't make us go blind, okay? And people are just getting saved, all right? But the thing I want you to notice here is, okay, first of all, this is, this is not a human work that is happening. They didn't human strategize. This how we'll start up a business and then we'll just do it with our talent and ability. No, they prayed and fasted. God led them. God opened supernaturally a door they could not open themselves, and they were further in that one meeting. They're going to go further than they could have gone in years of church work of all their best efforts. And then opposition comes up to the open door, right? So there's opposition. And what does Paul do the moment there's opposition? He squashes that opposition. Why? Because he is full of the Holy Spirit. Out of fasting and prayer comes this power, this filling the Spirit, that not only do you get the open door, you get this authority and this power to say to the opposition, you son of the devil, full of deceit and villainy, and just squash the opposition. Now, the question is, and this is where so many of us get this wrong, and we just totally miss what the Bible is actually saying, because we read into it our preconceived ideas and assumptions. If I was to ask most Christians today, you know, where does this authority come from? How do you get this kind of authority to talk to demonic opposition like this and it's gone? Most Christians would say, well, it's automatically part of being a Christian. That's what most of us would say. The moment you're a Christian, the moment you are just using the name of Jesus, you have the authority to just get rid of demonic opposition. And that is partially true. It is partially true. It is true that the moment you become a Christian and you start walking with Jesus, you are supposed to be able to walk in that kind of authority. But it is not true that most Christians actually do walk in this kind of authority. And last week, I just want to review this for just a couple minutes. Last week, Pastor Ray, powerful point of that message, and I want to bring it up again in this message because it is so important that you get this because we just have this idea. I'm a Christian, which means demons have to do whatever I say. That is not always true. And Pastor Ray last week took us to that story, Matthew chapter 17, where this, this man brings his poor son to the disciples, and this demon is trying to kill his son. And he brings his son to the disciples, and the disciples, did, were they followers of Jesus? Yes. Were they using the name of Jesus? Yes. Had they cast out demons before in Jesus' name? Yes. Had Jesus given them authority to cast the demons? Yes, yes, yes. And yet they tried as best they could to cast this demon out of this boy, and did the demon listen to them? No. And remember, these are the same disciples, Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent them out. And I'm going to put that verse up there. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out the disciples plus a whole bunch. There was actually 72 of them. It was more than just the core 12. There was a bunch of other disciples. He sent them out two by two into the towns to cast out demons and do ministry. And then when they came back, they were so pumped because it's like, the demons have to listen to us, right? They came back to Jesus. They said, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they, I mean, they had Jesus' name. They were followers of Jesus. They had cast out demons before. And then in Matthew 17, there's this poor little boy and his father's desperate. Please cast this demon out of my kid. They try. I just imagine them, you know, yelling at this demon and praying over in Jesus' name. And this demon isn't leaving. Why didn't he have to leave? And Pastor Ray took us through the scriptures last week and he showed us, Jesus said to them, he said, your faith is defective. The problem was your faith is defective. And what was it? And then he showed us another passage. In Mark, and he said the problem was that they had not been in prayer. See, here's the thing you have to understand. Having the title Christian does not scare demons. 
doesn't scare demons one bit that you carry the title Christian. There isn't a human being on the planet that scares demons. They're not scared of human beings. You want to know what, who demons are scared of? Jesus. And the only human beings who make demons any bit nervous are human beings who have been in the presence of Jesus. And so these disciples had gotten carried away. They thought, well, look at us. Jesus gave us authority to cast out demons. We can just cast out demons. And they started thinking that the, that the authority was in them rather than in their relationship with Jesus. And they're depending on themselves and this demon doesn't have to do anything they say. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. See, authority over opposition like that comes out of being in the presence of God. And so it's out of the prayer and fasting. It's no accident that in the early church in this story, Paul and Barnabas, they don't start off their ministry by thinking up all the good ideas and working out, writing out a bunch of good messages and getting a bunch of people with good talents and abilities together. Now let's go out and strategically start a church. That's not how they started the church at all. They prayed and fasted and got into the presence of God. Out of the presence of God, they got instruction, they got an open door, and then when opposition came, as it always will when God opens a door, they were just able to speak to that thing because they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit because they had been with the Holy Spirit. And Paul was able to just call out the opposition right there. And he was able to have authority to overcome that. And so now let's look at the results. Verse 12. Then the proconsul, that's the governor, believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished. He believed. He was astonished. Now, first of all, he was astonished because his right-hand man had just gone blind in front of him. But second of all, he was astonished. He wasn't astonished by the theological points Paul was making. He, and I'm going to show you that in just a moment. I'm going to show you another passage right away. But he was not astonished by the theological points Paul was making. He was not astonished by what an amazing speaker Paul was. He was not astonished by Paul. He was amazed by the power that came with the teaching. The presence of God was in that room. He watches his right-hand man go blind, and then as Paul teaches him the gospel, just a simple gospel message, the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of his heart, and he was astonished. He was experiencing God. That's what was happening. And so he believed. Now, you want to start a church in a province, you get the governor on board first, and now I can't even imagine what all happened in that province after this happened. Okay, there was fruitfulness in that ministry, and this is how they did ministry in the book of Acts. They didn't build their ministry on speaking ability or leadership ability or intelligence. They didn't come up with the best plan and get the best singer on board and get the best, you know, the, the evangelist and the best this, and then get all their human talents together and then start a church. No, their ministry was built on the experience and power and working of God. And I'll show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul explains his ministry strategy. Here it is. Speaking of the Corinthian church, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, proclaim, did not come proclaiming to you a testimony, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, I didn't come. Now, it's not bad to have a speaking ability or a teaching ability. God gives those gifts. But the point is, him build his ministry on his gift. I didn't come to you with lofty wisdom or speech. I didn't come to you with amazing messages. I didn't spend all my time in message prep making amazing messages for you. That's not how I did ministry with you. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing 
among you. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so here's Paul's ministry plan. I just want to know Jesus. I just want to spend so much time with Jesus and be so filled with Jesus and experience Jesus so, far, so much myself and be so full of his spirit that he spills out of me onto everybody else around me and that's my ministry plan. My ministry plan is not to win people to Christ with great speaking or great leading, even though I'm going to use whatever gifts God has for me, but I'm going to first be with Jesus. I'm going to first know Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to know Jesus. My number one job, did you know that's your number one job and my number one job too? Your number one job, my number one job, Paul's number one job is this, not to do things for God, it's to know Jesus. Out of that comes God working through you onto others. And so he goes on, verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, Paul wasn't one of these guys with his face on the front of a book cover. And not that it's bad to have your face on a book cover and have a big grin, but he wasn't one of those guys. He wasn't this charismatic leader oozing with confidence and a big slick smile and a suit jacket. And he could just, you know, on charisma and ability alone, just grow a church to thousands. That wasn't Paul. He wasn't one of these business people that could just grow a business to make millions on charisma and, and you know, leadership alone. He's fear, weakness, trembling. He trembled. He had no confidence in himself to be able to pull off the things God was wanting to do through him. And my speech and my message, next verse, were not implausible words of wisdom. And here's the secret. This is what he built his ministry on. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in men, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul said, my whole ministry is this. I do not want people following me. I don't want people enamored with me. I want people to experience God. My whole ministry is based on the demonstration of the spirit of power. Now, some people read this verse and they think, they right away think, so Paul's whole ministry was based on spectacular miracles. Well, yes, miracles in there too. But the demonstration of the spirit is not just talking about spectacular miracles. The demonstration of the spirit is any time I bring contact, people into contact with the Holy Spirit where God ceases to be just a cognitive thing in their brain. Like our ministry has to be more than just convincing people that God exists in their brain. Our ministry has to be bringing people to Jesus so that they experience him where he begins to work in their life that he actually begins to speak to them. I heard God, he must be real. He begins to deliver them a bondage. That's Paul's ministry, the demonstration of the Spirit. I bring people to Jesus. They fall in love with him rather than me. They begin to pray. They begin to see him answer prayers in their life. He changes them. They hear his voice. It's a real thing. His whole ministry was based on bringing people into that experience, the demonstration of the Spirit and of the, po- and, 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 of the Spirit and power. Now, if your ministry is all about bringing people to Jesus. It's about the demonstration of the spirit and power that your whole ministry is about bringing people to Jesus so they can experience Jesus. Then the most important thing you can do is spend time with Jesus because you can't give people what you don't have yourself. See, if your ministry, this is how you can tell. A lot of people think they're doing things for God that they're actually doing on their own power. If if your ministry rests on your speaking ability, then you should spend most of your time doing message prep. If your ministry rests on your leadership ability, you should do, spend most of your time leading. 
But if, and again, not that either of those things is bad. God uses gifts. We have to do things. We have to work. We don't just pray. But if the most important thing you do is bring people into an experience of Jesus, a demonstration of the Spirit, where they experience Him and begin to relate to Him themselves, then the most important thing you can do is experience Jesus yourself and be with Him. It's the most important thing. I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking to yourself, well, this is just, this whole point doesn't even apply to me. I'm not a pastor, right? I'm a hockey player. I'm a, I'm a business person. This doesn't apply to me. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a factory worker. I'm a construction worker. I'm a student. I'm a mom. I'm, I'm whatever. This is for pastors. It's a, it's a pastor's job. It's your job. To, this is a passage about the church. It's your job to bring people into experience of Jesus. It's my job to go out and just make money, Right? Well, show me that in the Bible. Anybody want to take me up on that this week? Show me in the Bible where the Bible teaches it's the pastor's job to bring people into an experience of Jesus and everybody else, that's not their job. No, you know what Jesus said in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28? He said to his disciples, he said to all of us, he said, go into all the world. He didn't say to pastors, go into all the world. He said to people, all of his followers, he said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. That's the job of anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus. You actually have a job. He gave you a job, and that's to make disciples. He wants us to go into every corner of the world, every factory, every bank, every locker room, every business, and he wants us to go into every one of those corners, and he wants us to bring the demonstration of the spirit and power into those places so that people can not just hear about Jesus, but they can experience Jesus. Just like those Koreans, they would go to these lost people. They wouldn't just tell them about Jesus. Hey, you need to believe in Jesus. They would say, tell me a prayer request. Then they would go and pray and fast like crazy until that prayer request would get answered. What did that person just have? A demonstration of the Spirit, an experience with Jesus. Then they get saved. You teach them how to hear God, and they have an experiential relationship with Jesus. That's what all of us are called to. That's your job as a Jesus follower. Go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world and bring the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You say, well, what does this have to do with fasting? It's in fasting that we get serious about this calling. I mean, if you never get the vision of what Jesus has actually called you to, if you just, I mean, in your head, most Christians know in their heads we're supposed to make disciples. But then in our hearts, we go out in our workplace and we act as if our job is just to do a good job and work hard. You, God did not give you a job just so you go out and work hard at that job. You should work hard at that job for Jesus, and he loves it when we work hard. But he gave you that job so you could go and bring a demonstration of the Spirit into that place, into your family, to your kids. It's not enough for, did you know it's not enough for you to teach your little kids about Jesus? Do you think if you just read them a few Bible stories and talk to them about Jesus, they'll grow up and follow Jesus automatically? False. Many Christians in our country are finding that out to be true. They go to church every week and they tell their kids about Jesus and their kids grow up and be 18 and then they don't follow Jesus. You want to know why they don't follow Jesus? Because just telling them about him doesn't make them want him. What your kids need is a demonstration of the Spirit. They need to see that you experience Jesus and you love him. They need to see him answering your prayers and then they need to hear his voice themselves. They need a demonstration of the Spirit. 
And that's what the people in your workplace need. And that's what the people on your hockey team need. And that's what the people in your extended family need. They need a demonstration of the spirit and power. And until you get that vision for yourself, though, you'll never catch on to fasting. I mean, it'll just never make sense to you. Why should we fast? I'll tell you why you fast. Because when you, your eyes get open to the fact that you actually need to have Jesus spilling onto people so that they can experience him for yourself, you get desperate then and say, well, I need to experience him then. I need to hear his voice. I need to be in his presence because I can't give them what I don't have. And so fasting is when we start to get desperate about this thing and say, I'm pushing in. And so the early church, they prayed and fasted. Why? Because they needed the power of God. They needed to hear God themselves. Then they could go out through the open doors and start to do some damage for the kingdom. You say, well, I can just pray for that stuff. I don't need to fast. That's the objection. That's the unspoken objection when it comes to fasting. I can just pray about that stuff. I don't need to fast about it. See, and we have this idea. The idea that is behind that assumption is this. We have this assumption that God is sovereign. He loves us. If I just throw up a prayer, then he's going to do with it whatever he wants, right? Isn't that what we, that what we basically think, even if we're not going to admit it? Like, basically what we think is, if I just throw it, he's going to do what he's going to do. He's sovereign. He loves me. If I'm his kid, if I just throw up a prayer, then if he thinks it's a good idea, he's going to do it. And if he doesn't, he won't. So I, all, I don't need to fast about that, Chris. I don't need to fast in order to see God do big things in my life. I just need to throw up a prayer, and if he wants to do big things, he's going to do it. If he doesn't, he won't. You know, that assumption is absolutely, utterly, totally, 100% false. It is not at all how Jesus taught us to think about prayer in the Gospels. And I could show you reams of Jesus teaching about prayer in the Gospels. Let me take you to one parable, Luke chapter 18. Did you know that not all prayer is created equal? Jesus taught this. You know, not all prayer is created equal. Did you know you could have, you could pray the same prayer. You could pray it one way, and you could pray it another way, and this way it gets answered, and this way it doesn't get answered. Did you know that? Sounds kind of shocking when I put it in those words. But not all prayer is created equal. I want to show you that now. I'll just show you one parable. I can show you tons of places in the gospel. Not all prayer is created equal. Let me show you this. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So here we have this statement. This is what this parable is about. Jesus told them a parable essentially to the effect that they should persist in prayer and never give up. Okay? That they should... Persist in prayer, never give up. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city, and this is a famous parable, right? Most of you know this already, as I, even as I start it. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Verse 4, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Let's stop there for just a moment. The whole point of this parable so far, so we started this parable, Jesus said, I want to tell you a parable to show you that you should always persist in prayer and never give up. Never, never, never give up. I'm going to tell you a parable about that. And then he tells this story about this woman and this judge. And the whole point of the parable to this point is that this woman got her request because she persisted and persisted and persisted. If she would have given up after casually asking the judge once, she would not have gotten her, her request. If she would have given up after casually asking the judge twice, 
she would not have gotten her request. If she would have given up after casually asking the judge three or four times, she would not have gotten her request answered. She got her request answered because she beat this poor man down with unbelievable persistence. Again and again and again. But we're not done. Verse 6. Now the Lord is interpreting. Jesus is interpreting this parable. And the Lord said, Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? That's the rest of us. Who cry. I want you to notice the word there, cry. Not a casual thing. There's more to this parable than just persistence. There's a fervency in this parable. Jesus says, Will not God give justice and the answers to prayer that you need to those who cry? They don't just persist, but they cry. There's a fervency. There's an earnestness. Jesus, I need you to do this. Will not he give justice to those who cry to him day and night? Fervent, persistent prayer is how Jesus taught us to pray. Fervent, persistent prayer. Now, just a quick caveat here because some of you will take one line that I said and take it to an unhealthy place. We'll just put this message on pause for 15 seconds here. This does not mean that every single time you pray, you must pray crying out with fervency, okay? When you pray over lunch today with your family or at McDonald's, you don't have to cry out to God, oh, Lord Jesus, I pray. Cry out to him. You don't have to do that, okay? You don't have to pray to God like that. Every time you pray, you got to just, oh, no, 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 okay? It's not saying that every time you pray, you must be fervent and crying out to God. But what this is saying is this. There are some big things in your life that will not move. There are some big miracles in your life that will not happen unless you cry out to God persistently over and over again, and grab a hold of heaven's throne with fervency, unless you do that persistently, again and again, crying out to God day and night. There's a, there are some big things in your life that will not move. But if you will go after God with that kind of earnest, earnestness and fervency, there is nothing big in your life that he cannot move. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And so we keep re- reading, Jesus says this, will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? You know, let's just forget about the rest of the earth. Let's forget about the rest of Canada. Let's just talk about us here at Southland right now. When Jesus comes back, will he find faith here in this group of people this morning? When Jesus comes back, will he find faith in your family? Will he find faith in your house? Will he find faith in you? Well, what's faith? Jesus just showed us what faith is in this parable. A lot of us think we have faith because we asked Jesus into our heart 25 years ago, and that's a good start. That's not the kind of faith Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying, when I come back to earth, will I find people who have asked me into their heart with a nice little prayer once? Nobody's saying He's like, will I find faith on the earth? Who's his example of faith in this parable? His example of faith is this woman. 
Faith in this parable is not a prayer you prayed once. The sign that you have faith in this par- is from this parable is that when you have big things and big mountains in your life, you pray for them like this woman prayed for hers. That's the sign of faith. People who pray like this woman, when they have a big problem in their life, they cry out to God with fervency and persistency. Those are the people who have faith. Those who do not pray like this and push into God when they have big things in their life are people who do not have faith according to this parable. You know what's amazing? What's amazing to me about all this is that Jesus actually followed his own advice about prayer. This is so profound. Do you guys want to see a profound passage of Scripture? I want to show you a profound one, okay? This, this, one, this one just, looking for a word there, uh, boggled my mind this week. Hebrews 5, 7. Look at this. This is Jesus praying. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with casual, no, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was here on the earth, that's what time with, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now think about that. You know what just boggled my mind this week as I was thinking about that? Think about it. Jesus is God. He is God. And when he prayed, you would think, well, just be casual. You know what's going to happen. I mean, you're God. You're the one who makes it happen. So when you pray, it's got to be casual because it's like, oh, I know what I'm going to do anyway. So would you just do this, Father, and do it? No. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. If the Son of God prayed with that kind of fervency and we're taught to pray like that, how much more should we when we encounter big mountains in our lives? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Famous passage, let's go to another one, James five 17. We've looked at this many times. I think Pastor Ray did it last week. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was not super spiritual. He was not super special. He was absolutely normal. Very normal. Extremely, incredibly regular and normal. And I don't mean regular in the other sense, but in the sense of being normal. (laughs) Just to make that clear. All right. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently. Not casually. He didn't just throw it up. Well, God, I know you want to make it rain, so just make it rain. And then he's going to do what he's going to do. That's not what he did. He prayed fervently. If you go to 1 Kings, he actually prayed seven times. He would pray. Is there a rain cloud? No. Pray. Is there a rain cloud? No. Seven times until the rain cloud came. Fervently he prayed. That it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth, and he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly. To the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. You want to see the kingdom of God expand in your family, in, the, in your workplace. And it just, if you want to see God just move in your life, it's going to take earnest praying, fervent praying. Now, I want to just, again, let's put this message on pause for just a second because I want to make sure you have the right picture of God when you are fervently praying. I don't want you to go out of here and I don't want you to go out of here and you begin to pray fervently because you have this picture in your mind that the reason you have to fervently pray is because God doesn't care and you have to try and convince him to care. That's not why we pray fervently. We don't pray fervently to God because he's bad. Please, God, help me. Please, God, help me. And I know you don't care, but please, I'm going to drive you crazy until you help me. No, that's not why we pray. Okay? 
The reason we pray fervently, the thing you have to understand is that God loves us. He wants, he actually wants to answer your prayers. You say, well, why do I have to pray fervently? That's the whole thing of if he loves me and wants to answer my prayers, I can just throw up a prayer and he'll do it or not. No, no. The thing you have to understand is there's something really important that God wants to do in you. And your prayer requests are the excuse for you to get something better than your answer to prayer. See, what you and I need more than anything is actually to connect to God. That is the answer. And your heart, did you, have you ever noticed this? Casual prayers, when you just pray a casual prayer, and by the way, casual prayers aren't bad. I'm not against casual prayers. God loves us. You know, I go to McDonald's, I pray a casual prayer. I thank him for the food. I talk to him sometimes throughout the day, and I'll say casual things to him. It's not that casual things are bad, but here's the thing about casual prayer. Your heart does not connect with the deep things in God's heart when you just pray casually. There's something that happens when you fervently push into God that doesn't happen when you just pray a casual prayer. When you push into God because you have some big need and you have a miracle you need so bad and you've needed it for years and it weighs you down and it's so hard. I'm betting we have a few of those here today. And you don't just break casually, but you begin to push in. Something happens when you push into God with deep needs and deep cries. God, help me. Your heart actually connects with his. And that's what he wants. And you know what's the amazing thing about him? He actually is waiting to act on your behalf. But he wants you to connect with him. And so what I found in my life is the moment you connect with his heart, heart to heart, you push in with that fervency, the moment you connect, it's like he leaps for joy. It's like he's excited and he goes to work. I'm not saying he always answers your prayer exactly how you wanted it, but he begins to do a lot of stuff, usually better than what you had asked for. Sometimes different, many times different, but always better. He begins to work. It's like he leaps into action. The moment your heart and his heart come into connection, boom, he starts working. And that only comes through that fervency. And you know, this is so healing. The act of pushing into God and connecting with his heart fervently, and now he begins to work, it's actually healing. I remember a bunch of years ago, uh, and I won't share the details of what I was praying for, but a bunch of years ago, I was really desperate for something in my life. Really desperate. And I remember being out in the bush, right here behind the church, because our house is just down there. And uh, I just had a deep need. I just had a deep need from God. And I remember I was so desperate. It was cold. It, it wasn't minus 30. I was more like, I'm not quite that spiritual, but it was like minus 15, so pretty good. But I had my boots on. I had my mitts on. I had my tooth, my parka. I was out in the, this bush over here. I was tramping around in the snow, and I was crying out to God. Oh, God, if you don't do this, I'm sunk. God, if you don't do this, I'm sunk. Jesus, I believe that you're real, please. And I just cried. I was tromping out in the cold and the snow. It was dark. It was nighttime. And I'm out there in the bushes back there. And suddenly as I cry out to God, this doesn't happen when you pray casually. But as I'm crying out to God, suddenly this wave of peace just rolls over me. And I met with God, and it was, I didn't have my answer yet. Actually, not even close. But in that moment, I was with God out there in the bush, and it was, it was better even than having the answer. It was, God was real. It was like heaven on my insides. I had this peace. Oh, everything's okay. God's with me. I was filled with joy and hope. It was eternal life. 
A few weeks later, I was praying and fasting. I was in our basement. I was crying out, same prayer request. Oh, God. Please, I need you to do this in my life. I need you, Jesus. Oh, please. God, I love you. I, need, I can't hold up under this. I need you to do it. As I'm praying to him in the basement, oh, lightning. It's like a verse. I still have it marked in my Bible. I have it marked in all of my Bibles for the rest of my life. Got it dated in my, my Bible. I got it underlined. I got it circled. I go back to it all the time. Ten years. It's been ten years now. And I, he gave him this verse like a lightning comes out of any nor. And I get this promise. You don't get that in casual prayer. I got this promise. Oh, hope and joy. I didn't have the answer yet. I knew I had the answer though. It was almost a year later I got my answer. But already that whole year before the answer came, I was walking on cloud nine. I had, had, I had met with God. And he did something in my life and I had a promise. Oh, it was, it was awesome. It was healing. That's what this is all about. This doesn't happen when you just, you don't just casually throw out a prayer. Oh, God's gonna do what he's gonna do. No, it's in the fervency your hearts connect. Something is released and the power of God is coming into your life and out of that he begins to work in powerful ways joyfully on your behalf. Out of fervent and earnest prayer. But when Jesus comes back, is he going to find any faith on the earth? Is he going to find faith in your life or is he going to find flippancy and apathy? You say, well, what does all this have to do with fasting? Fasting is not a burden. It is a tool of fervency. It is a tangible, practical thing you can do. I mean, I just love it. It's a gift from God. Only he's genius enough to think this stuff up. Because you know what? The fact of the matter is, our hearts just don't feel hungers and desperation sometimes for the things they need to feel for. And so when I fast from food, it's a tangible thing. It's a tool in my hand where I say to God, my heart's messed up and I don't feel passionate about the things I should, but I really want you. I am serious about this thing I'm asking you about. And that's why I'm hungry right now because I'm hungry for you to do something in my life. Fasting is a tool of fervency to help you pray with earnestness because that is the kind of prayer that moves things. Fasting is not for, you know, self-satisfied people. Okay, fasting is a tool of fervency. It's a tool of desperation. It's a tool for people who are hungry for more of God. Fasting is not for people. You ask them, hey, what are you praying for? What are you asking God to do right now in your life? Oh, nothing. Everything's pretty good. Well, how, how are you doing in your walk with God? Well, it's a bit dry, but it's fine. Fasting is not for those people. That's not, the fasting's not for those people. Fasting is for people who want God to do something. Fasting is for people who, they have grown kids who are away from the Lord, and they know that kid is going to go to hell unless Jesus does something. And so I am praying and fasting because I want some, Jesus to do something. It's also for people with little kids who don't want their kids to get there. Fasting is for people, you've got an 8-year-old kid and a 10-year-old kid and a 5-year-old kid, and you get alone before God and you say, Jesus, I want them to hear your voice for themselves. Fasting is for people who are hungry for more of God in their life. I want my kids to experience you in this home, not just hear about you. Oh God, I need you to do something big in my business. Oh God, I need you to help me out of this thing. God, my marriage has been in shambles for 10 years and I've been self-medicating with TV and hobbies just trying not to think about the pain in my marriage. But oh God, I'm going to start facing my pain now in prayer. And with prayer and fasting, I'm going to say, God, I want you to do a miracle and heal this thing. That's who fasting's for. 
People who want more of God in their life. It's not a legalistic thing. That's what we always do in North America. Anything we don't want to do, we just say, well, it, don't be legalistic about it. Maybe I should go to China and tell them to stop being so legalistic about their fasting. Quit winning thousands of people to Christ every year and seeing so many miracles. You need to stop fasting. You're getting legalistic about it. It's not about legalism. It's about hunger. It's not about you have to. You're not a better Christian. You don't do it to impress God. You don't do it to impress people. You don't do it to get brownie points. If it's any of those things, I hate it too. But fasting is for people who are hungry, who actually want God to do more in their life. And they want him to move big mountains in their life. There's a second reason why we don't fast. First is we aren't hungry or desperate enough, and this is the one I want to finish with. One reason we don't fast, we're just not hungry for God to do anything. We're not desperate for him to do something big. Second reason we don't fast is we just don't believe. We, don't, we just don't believe. We don't believe God actually wants to answer our prayers. We don't believe that God actually promises to reward all of those who earnestly seek him. We don't believe that. If we did believe that, we'd be motivated to do it. We don't, we don't actually believe that if I, we actually, deep down, we believe God's just going to do what he's going to do. And if God's just going to do what he's going to do, there's no motivation for fasting. None. Then I, then I hate it. I'm with you. Most of my Christian life, I hated fasting because I thought it was just a discipline I had to do to be spiritual. If that's what fasting is, it's garbage if it does nothing. But if you get to a place where you realize actually in your core of your heart of hearts that he's a loving father and he's waiting, he's joyful, he's actually champing at the bit, chomping I should say, he's chomping at the bit to do something big in your life. When you get that in your heart, suddenly you have a motivation to fast. There's a reason I'm hungry today and that is because God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Look at this, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this about faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe. They have to believe two things now. I want you to notice this. What is it important to believe? What two things? If you're going to have faith and please God, what two things do you have to believe? Number one, you have to believe that he exists. Well, all Christians get that one. We're 50%. I mean, you wouldn't be a Christian if you didn't believe God, God exists. So you believe God exists, you're halfway there. Most of us are only at 50%. We don't believe the second part, and that's why we don't pray and fast. Because there's a second thing you have to believe, not only that he exists, but that you also must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You know what? There's two groups of people. When it comes to fasting, there's two groups of people who fast. There's a third group of people who just never fast. We won't talk about them. There's two groups of people who fast. One group of people fast, and they hate fasting. They feel guilty about it. That was me much of my life. The other group of people fast, and they don't like fasting because nobody likes fasting. Nobody likes being hungry. Even Grace Fast and Pastor Ray don't like being hungry. If you like being hungry, there's something wrong with you. Okay? You need help. That's not healthy. Defeat the purpose. It's the point. It's, nobody likes fasting. But one group hates it and feels it's a burden, and the other group, even though they don't like it, they're motivated to do it. They do it, and yet yeah, there's a joy there. There's a motivation. Not that they love it, not that kind of joy, but they do it, and God does things in their life. And you want to know the biggest difference in these two groups of people? 
There's one difference. It has nothing to do with super spiritualness. It has nothing to do with liking being hungry because no one does. The difference between this group of people is this group of people just fasts for the sake of fasting. They don't actually think God does anything. It's just a discipline for the sake of discipline. How dead and gross and yuck is that? The other group of people does it because they actually believe this verse. In, their core, in the core of their hearts, they actually have a picture of God that he loves to work in my life. And so I'm hungry today and I'm a little giddy because I don't all know what God's going to do in my life. This morning, you know what I did this morning? Early this morning, I was up praying. I started praying. Holy Spirit interrupts me. I get this thought. You know what? I should just be thankful. Ah, no, I'm kind of busy. I want to pray this. i just be thankful. Fine. You know, I just started writing down the things God has done in my life in the last two weeks, prayer and fasting month. The stuff I've been fasting. All these things I haven't even prayed about that God, and none of them are miracles like you write a book about it, it'd be so spectacular, but all of it is really amazing heart stuff that really matters to me. Like one day, a few days ago, we're having family devos, we're all reading the Bible together, that's how we do devos, is we all have our journals out, all the kids and, and us, we put on worship music, and then we read the same passage of scripture for 15, 20 minutes, and we write in our journals, and then we share. That's how we do family devos. And, and one of the things I prayed and fasted the one day is I said, Jesus, I just want joy. That's my daughter, my oldest daughter. I just want her to love your word. You know what she told me that evening? We had family devos. She said, Dad, I love reading the Bible with you. Oh, hi, whoa. You you answered a prayer, God. And I wrote, I wrote down, whole page. I spent my whole devotion time this morning praising God, all the things he's done, that stuff like that that I prayed for, and then a whole bunch of stuff I hadn't prayed for, that it just heart stuff and family stuff that was so amazing. I had exclamation marks after every, and then I said after, God, I can hardly wait to fast this week. Why? Do I like being hungry? I hate being hungry. But I love that God works in my life. So there's a reason for it. And you know, this is what the Bible teaches us about prayer and fasting. We don't pray and fast because this is how spiritual I am. We pray and fast because he answers. Look at this, Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. It doesn't say ask for the sake of asking. Ask because you get something when you ask. Seek, and you will find. Seek because you're going to find stuff. Knock, and the door will be opened. According to Jesus here, there is no point to praying if, you're not, if God's not doing anything. There's no point to asking if there's no receiving. There's no point to seeking if there's no finding. And there's no point to knocking unless the door gets open to you. This is why we pray and fast. This is the motivation. And once this gets in your heart, oh, God starts to flood your heart with love. And my picture of God is so radically being changed over the last few years. When I go to prayer, I have so much hope now because I know he's good. I know he listens to me. I know he answers. And I know that when I pray and fast, he does stuff. And so I just love it. And I go, God, I want January to go on longer this year because I want you to do more stuff in my life. So this is what I want to do now to end this message. I want you to take out a piece of paper and a pen. Some of you already had one. Good. Some of you don't. I was going to say shame on you, but I won't. (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, take a response card out. Take up, there's pencils in front of all the seats. Write on your hand. Write on the, on, on, no, don't write on the person beside you. That won't help you. <laughs> Steal something from a purse around you. I don't, someone left to go take their baby to the prayer room. Take something out of their bag and write on it, okay? But just, I want you to take out a pen and a paper, pencil and a paper, whatever it is. Pete, scrap of something to write on. And this is what I want you to do right now. 
I want you to write down on that piece of paper the deepest desire of your heart. What is the thing you desire God to do for you more than anything else? What's the biggest, maybe, maybe that way I worded it there didn't connect with you. Maybe, maybe, what's the biggest obstacle in your life right now? You just need God to do a miracle. Like I'm in huge financial problem. Or I have a huge issue with this. Or what do you need to hear God speak to you about? What's the big, if you could ask God one prayer request right now, what's the biggest one? And just, just put it down, the big one, not little ones. Some of us are actually afraid to write down our biggest desires because we're afraid of being disappointed. Some of you are afraid to write down right now, your biggest desire actually is, I want a baby in 2014. You need to write that down. What is the biggest desire? I'm not saying, don't try and be spiritual here of what is the thing I think God wants to give me this year. Don't over-spiritualize like that. I want you to write down on a piece of paper, what do I want from God more than anything else? What do I desire? What is the biggest mountain in my life right now. Some of you, you don't even know how to, you know, whittle it down to one because you got like 10 things. Write, write down more than one. It doesn't matter to me. Write down one thing. What would you like God to do? Maybe, maybe it's not one thing. Maybe it's more you just have a hunger for more of God. Like you just want, you have little kids and they haven't gone bad yet, but you don't want them to go bad. You want them to love Jesus. Maybe, maybe your prayer request is just in 2014, I actually want our family to experience Jesus together. Maybe it's just, maybe it's I, my husband used to love you, Jesus, and he doesn't anymore. I want him to love you, Jesus. Maybe that's what it is for you. I want to know you. God, I'm sick of hearing Chris and Pastor Ray and whoever talk about you on the weekend. I want to hear you. Maybe that's your biggest desire. You write that down. What's your biggest desire? What's the biggest thing? I, I dare you right now. I dare you to face up to your biggest desires and to face up to potential disp- disappointment and to write it down and say, Jesus, this is what I actually want. This is what I actually want. Now let me ask you something as you're writing that down. Do you actually believe that God is real? Like not just you believe he's real in your head and that's why you come to church and you always have. Do you actually believe he's real and he can do miracles? Do you actually believe that? I read your verses here. Do you actually believe he rewards those who are earnestly? It says he does. It doesn't say sometimes. It says he does. It doesn't mean he always answers our prayers exactly how we want. But anybody who earnestly seeks him, it says he rewards them. Do you actually believe that? That you actually come out ahead every time. You might not know it right away. It might come like my answer to prayer. You know, I was fasting and praying, pursuing God, that one thing I was talking about before. It didn't come right away. It came about a year later. But I knew that whole year already. I knew I, had, I knew I had already been blessed even before my answer came. Do you believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him? Write it down. And then here's my challenge to you this week. For those of you who are able, not, you know, if you have medical reasons, like you're diabetic or something like that, don't do this. I'm not telling you to do this if, you, if you, there's reasons why you can't. If you have medical problems, don't, don't do this, okay? If you're a nursing mom or you're at a stage in your life, you've got little kids in the house and you just feel like you can't, can't do this, then, then don't. I'm going to tell you you have to. This isn't legalism. This isn't you have to. You might be at a stage of life where you can't. It's not a guilt trip. But I want you to challenge. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to do something with you this week. Those of you who want. This is an invitation. It's not even a challenge. It's an invitation. I would invite any of you right now who are here and the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart and you actually want, you have a little bit of a hunger. You want to see God do more in your life. 
You've got a big thing, a big mountain you want God to move. I'm going to challenge you this week. I invite you, invite you, not challenge. I invite you, those of you, the Holy Spirit's tug on your heart. Join me this week. Let's do a three-day food fast together. Tuesday to Thursday, supper. Don't eat food. Tuesday or Wednesday, all day. Thursday until supper. Don't eat any food. Drink lots of healthy juices, tons of juice. Vegetable juice, fruit juice, I don't care. Drink, be, you'll be in the bathroom half the time. It's wonderful, Okay. Make sure you have extra time for prayer. You set up time, you pray. You have extra time for prayer. You push into God. I'm going to challenge Do it with me. I'll do it with you. I'll be hungry with you. We'll do three days, Tuesday to Thursday. And let's do a fast together. And let's see. Let's take God up on his dare that he said. He said, not me. Don't do this fast because you're trusting in Chris. He said, ask and you will receive. He said, seek and you will find. He said, knock and the door will be opened. He said, I will reward those who earnestly seek me. And let's take God up on his dare and let's earnestly seek him together. And you know what? I want to I encourage you. You can email me, Chris, K-R-I-S. Get it right? Not C-H. <laughs> K-R-I-S-D, Chris D at myselfund.com. You email me here at church during your fast and you email me, Though I got a headache and I hate this. And I'll pray for you right then, I promise you. I want you to knock out my email this week, emailing me about what God's doing and how much you're struggling. And we'll do this together. I'll be hungry with you. But we're going to seek God together to do bigger things in our lives. Okay? That's my, and again, some of you might be sitting there and you're going, ah. You know, if I, if I fast for three days, it's going to mess up my, my exercise program. And you're, for some of you, that's a good thing. Woohoo. And you know what? Again, I want to just say this. Fine. You don't want to do it. You don't have to. We're not doing this to impress people. Maybe you planned another fast already. You don't want to do this one. It's fine. Nobody's going to look at you weird. Nobody's going to judge you. This is only for those people. The Holy Spirit's tugging in your heart. You want to see God do a big miracle in your life in 2014. Let's do this together. Let's ask God for more. And if you feel like you absolutely cannot fast three days without food, do Tuesday. Just do Tuesday with us. Do the first day. And then Tuesday night, we have the prayer summit. You know, I don't pump the prayer summit because like, oh, it, we feel successful as pastors if we pack out this program. It's not a program. I actually believe if the church gets together and prays that God's going to do big things in our lives and in this church. And I want us to just knock out the doors of this building with a hunger for God this Tuesday. And since you're not eating supper anyway, you may as well come, all right? Now, we're going to sing and we're going to worship God, but I want you to stand and I want to pray for a miracle in your life right now. I'm going to pray for a miracle in your life right now. Before we worship, I want you to stand. Those of you who want, again, you don't have to, no guilt, but those of you who really have a hunger for more God in your life and you want God to do a miracle in your life this year, I'm going to pray for you right now. Because I actually believe that when we ask God things, he answers. And some of you, you're going to put out your hand right now. It's going to feel dorky. I'm going to pray for you and you're going to fast this week and 10 months from now, this week, you might not even feel anything. And 10 months from now, something will happen in your life and you go, and it was a seed that was planted in this prayer here this morning and this fasting this week. Lord Jesus, I believe with all my heart that you are real. I also believe with all my heart that you meant what you said when you said, ask and receive, seek and find, knock and the door will be open. I believe that you reward all those who earnestly seek you. Lord Jesus, for those who are going to take the plunge with me this week, and they're going to do three days, Tuesday to Thursday, and they're going to be hungry. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength in their fast. Holy Spirit strength, not human strength. And they will find themselves depending on you. 
And they will find themselves praying and asking you for things they've never asked you for before. I pray that a seed of faith would grow up in them. Lord Jesus, there are many different mountains represented here this morning. Marriages on the rocks, people in need of healing, people who want a baby more than anything else in the world. Lord Jesus, my prayer is that you are going to answer these prayers this year. Massive, awesome answers to prayer. And you're working in a demonstration of spirit and power in their lives this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.